Remembering where you come from is actually a really important thing to understand where you are now. So, for instance, sometimes I might go back and see some of my old school books, and I'll open up my school books from like year eight, and I'll read some of the essays I've written, and man, those things are cringe. Those things are really hard to read. I've come a long way in my writing ability since I was in year eight, and it's helpful to remember back then how far I've actually come and how far I've actually improved. And、uh, we can remember all、uh, all sorts of different things. I remember my old sermons. In fact,、uh, recently I saw one of the old files, one of my old sermons, maybe about four years ago. I opened it up, and man, it was embarrassing just how bad that sermon was. And it's funny how、uh, I wouldn't have known. Sometimes I can feel bad, at,、uh, like feel sorry for myself. Uh, when I feel like I haven't written a good sermon,、uh, but sometimes all I need to do is just go back in time, maybe four years, and pick up one of those sermons and realize, hang on a minute, I've actually come a long way. Still got a long way to go, but I've come a long way. And it's good to look back into your past and see how far you've come, and to remember how far God has brought you along in your life. And in this passage in Ephesians, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul is coming along and he's bringing to remembrance the former life. Of the Ephesian church, he's saying to that church, "Remember where you came from. Remember who you were, and remember who you are now. Remember the work that Jesus, through the cross, has done in your lives, and how that has changed your life for the better." And so it helps us to remember where we've come from, not to feel too sorry for ourselves. It helps us not to wallow in self pity. It helps us not to constantly be looking to the past because we can remember when we look back. Then we can see who we were, and we can look to now. We can see what God has done. And yes, there's a lot of work left to be done. And yes, I know a lot of you aren't where you feel like you need to be, but man, you are a lot further than you were before, aren't you? And so that's what Paul is calling the Ephesian church to do. Remember how far away you were when you were dead in your sin, and then God took them and made them alive in Christ. And He's reminding them, "This is who you were." And so those that are, are trapped in self pity and remorse forget how far they've come and forget how far God has brought them. And so Paul is reminding the church of something really important, something that they need to remember. And there's three things he brings. To remembrance to them. The first thing he brings is their heritage. He reminds them of their heritage. Number two, he reminds them that they were outsiders. And number three, he reminds them that they were godless. That they were godless. As、so、a first thing to note in our passage, Paul says that they were called the uncircumcision by those that are the circumcision. What does that mean? Well, back in Genesis twelve one to three, God says this to Abram. He says, "Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." See, God plucked Abraham out of obscurity, out of this faraway、uh, town, and He said, "I'm going to take you to this place." And by faith, Abraham believed God and went. And he believed that these promises would come true, and that God would fulfill His word to him. And there was a sign that God gave to Abraham, and that sign was circumcision—the medical procedure of circumcision. 
And so God took this man out of obscurity and made him into a people. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your name's going to be great. And it's true because every, you know, people all around the world know the name of Abraham. He's one of the most important men in all of history. And so his name is great. And the sign of this covenant was given to him circumcision that all the men that are descendant of Abraham and are included in this promise need to be circumcised. That is basically in a nutshell what the Abrahamic covenant is. And so this will signify to all people who are circumcised in the descendant, that are descendants of Abraham, that they are part of this covenant, that they also are part of the promises that God made to Abraham. And so if you're a Gentile, by definition, you're not included in this promise. You aren't a descendant of Abraham. You're a descendant of uh, a completely different line of people. And so if you were a Gentile at this time, if you were a Roman, if you were a Northern European, just everyone around that area, if you were a descendant of Abraham, you were considered a Gentile. And you would be called uncircumcised. Now, it was a derogatory term to be called uncircumcised by Jewish people. It was a term that the Jews would throw at Gentiles, and it basically means that you're unclean, that you're morally corrupt, that uh, you shouldn't be associated with, that you have, uh, you have, uh, you don't have the sign of this covenant on you. And so they had no divinely appointed lineage. They aren't included in God's promises. This is the, this is the, uh, this is the viewpoint of the Jewish people. But it goes both ways. Because in the Roman Empire, they weren't a big fans of the Jews either. In fact, they saw circumcision as barbaric. They saw it as disgusting, as a cruel custom, something that you shouldn't inflict on little baby boys. Uh, this is not a medical procedure that you should be involved in. The Romans even executed a high-ranking government, uh, government official for getting circumcised in 95 AD. And shortly after this, uh, one of the emperors, Emperor Hadrian, actually made circumcision illegal. You weren't allowed to do it. And so there was this big conflict over circumcision between the Jews and the Gentiles with one group thinking that being uh, uncircumcised was disgusting and morally corrupt and you weren't, you weren't included in the promises of God. And the other side saying if you were circumcised, you were the, you know, the victim of this barbaric uh, procedure. And so this Signal of a uh, symbol of circumcision carried huge social, religious, and symbolic meaning, and uh, we're we're far removed from that time. But we should recognize that this was a huge point of conflict for that early community. And so Paul reminds the Ephesians: You guys were once called the uncircumcision. The Jews once saw you as morally corrupt. They saw you as morally filthy. Um, it was a derogatory term that placed them outside of the promises of Israel, and they were insulted this way. Paul says, by the so-called circumcision, the circumcision. Paul takes a little jab at the Jews here because he says that your circumcision is made in the flesh by hands. And anytime this shows up in the New Testament that something's done by human hands, it's never a good thing. And so here, the circumcision that is done by human hands is not a good thing. And what Paul is implying is that the work of circumcision, yeah, maybe you are a descendant of Abraham. Maybe you are in the lineage of those promises, but remember that circumcision is just a medical procedure done by humans. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. It's a symbol for something, but the symbol in and of itself actually has no meaning. What does he mean? 
It's not done by God. The circumcision is not done by God. God doesn't circumcise people. It's a symbol of something that should happen in the hearts of people. So why is this distinction? Deuteronomy 10.16 offers us a really good insight into the way that the Jews understood circumcision. This is what Moses says. He says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. See, this concept of circumcision of the heart basically means that you, uh, basically means this, that you need, though you may be a physical descendant of Abraham, you need to be a spiritual descendant too. You can't just be a physical descendant of him, you need to be like him. Abraham's heart was soft towards God because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, the Israelites during Moses' day, when the book of Deuteronomy was written, they weren't the same people as Abraham because these people were stiff-necked. These people resisted God. They were stubborn. They had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of all of their idolatry and all the way that they followed after other gods and they disobeyed God's commands. And they were stiff. They They weren't listening to anything that Moses said, anything that God says. And it doesn't matter that they were circumcised because they were disobedient to God and they didn't have the faith that Abraham had. And that was a problem. See, circumcision... It counts for nothing if you don't have the faith that that symbol points to, and that's the faith of Abraham. And so Paul highlights this point well in uh, Galatians 3, 7 to 8. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations Be blessed. Did you hear what Paul said in Galatians just there? This is quite revolutionary for the Jewish person. It completely flips their worldview. It isn't circumcision that makes you part of the Abrahamic covenant. But it's faith. It's faith. See, the Jews, they'd boast in their lineage. They'd feel like because they are Jews, they're they're pretty comfortable. They're pretty safe. God's going to rescue them. God's going to do all these nice things for them because of where they have come from. But Paul is saying, no, you need to have the same faith as Abraham. See, the Gentiles, they had a heritage problem. Yes, they weren't descendant from Abraham. But it wasn't something that couldn't be overcome. But also the Jews had a problem too. Because though they were a descendant of Abraham... They were stubborn, they resisted God, they rejected the Holy Spirit. And so both of those groups, whether they were a descendant or not, were both in trouble. And so Paul says to the Ephesian church, remember, you aren't a descendant of Abraham by birth. And that that is a problem. But even a bigger problem, you're not even a descendant by faith either. You may not have circumcision, but you certainly don't have circumcised hearts. They don't have the faith that Abraham had. So for the Gentiles, it's a double whammy. See, for the Jews, at least they had the example of Abraham. For the Jews, they had the symbols to point them to the realities. They had so much more to help them understand how they are to relate to God. But the Gentiles had nothing. They didn't have a symbol. They didn't have any faith. So verse 12, Paul says this. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. So the Ephesians had no expectation of a Christ, of a deliverer sent by God. The Jews had, uh, the Gentiles had no citizenship in the Commonwealth of Israel. They had no inclusion in the Abrahamic covenant. They were on the outside of all of God's promises looking in. They were on the outside. They needed something to happen. And so they're completely outside the promises of Israel and the hope that came with Jesus. There was no expectation of a messianic figure. And for most of the ancient world, you're on your own. You're on your own. You have no hope. You have very, you know, you had your own little village that you lived in, your town, and it depended on the harvest every winter. Because if the harvest didn't come in, you would starve. And so you'd go out, and in order to make sure that the harvest uh, was bountiful, you would go and sacrifice to all the gods. The gods of the harvest, the god for this, the god for that, the god for fertility, the god for wine. All these gods you'd, you'd sacrifice to and hope that this deity will bless you. But even then, the deities of the ancient world were fickle. They would change their mind at any moment. And sometimes you would do all the sacrifices you needed to do, and the god would say, look, I'm not going to do it, and would go the other way. And so you didn't have much hope. And if the harvest didn't come in, you would starve. It's a cold and fearful world, the ancient world, and the gods were completely unreliable. Harvests that you would that, that you depended upon for survival wouldn't come in. And wars ravaged the countryside and they'd rob you of all the young men that would work in the fields. And so your only hope of getting through the life, uh, this life was being on the good side of the gods. You needed to make sure that the gods were happy with you. And if the gods weren't happy with you, well, you needed to appease them more. You needed to do more so that they would bless you. And even after doing all of those things, they still might turn their back on you. It was a strange and harsh environment And there was no certainty. There was absolutely no certainty. See, the Roman pagans, for all their systems and military might and philosophy, they had no hope on offer for any of their citizens. And that sounds a lot like our time, doesn't it? People really struggle with hope because there is no concept of hope. People are frightened that a disease is going to come and take their life. People are frightened that some meteor could come and strike the world and in an instant we're destroyed. That global warming is going to come and that we're no longer going to have a planet. People are constantly fearful, without hope for the future, worried about what's going to happen to the human race. But this is just like all throughout history, the common view without God. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, he says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Just like the Gentiles in Ephesus, it's the same for the Gentiles here in Australia. They're separate from Christ. They have no hope for the future. Without God in the world, strangers to the covenants and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Our existence is just as uncertain as the Ephesian existence. This brings us to our next point. The Ephesians are godless. They were godless. Uh, End of verse 12, Paul says that they have no hope and are without God in the world. As I said before, the gods of the ancient world were cruel, pitiless, gods who had little concern for mortals. There was no general idea of where the future was going, no hope of things getting better. Even after death, even after you died, there was still little hope, maybe except for the couple, couple of Greek philosophers here and there who have some abstract ideas. But basically... Your life was suffering, 
And your death will probably be suffering too. And so the whole of human existence was suffering. There was no hope. They had no hope of God in the world. They had no real idea of a hopeful existence. And even if they did, even if they did have some level of hope, they were going to have to face God one day and give an account for everything they'd done and stand before him in our own righteousness. And that is a terrifying, terrifying thing to think of. It was a tough existence for the, for the pagans. Uh, Woody Allen, uh, many of the older people in church will know who I'm talking about. He was a famous actor. He's now a director. And he has a very pessimistic view of life that characterizes many people in this world. He says this. He says that life is full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness. And it's all over much too quickly. I have a very grim, pessimistic view of life. It's a grim, painful, nightmarish experience. I felt this way since I was a little boy. If one looks at life too directly, it becomes unbearable to live. There is no advantage in getting older. You don't get smarter. You don't get wiser. You don't get more mellow. Your back gets sore. Your eyesight gets worse. I would advise you not to do it. Yikes. Man, he, you gotta feel sorry for this guy. Cause this is a, Woody Allen has no hope. This man has no hope that things would get better. But many feel the same way, don't they? Many have the same attitude as Woody Allen. And he's touching on this great elephant in the room. And, and it's this uncertainty for the future. It's a lack of hope. It's a lack of direction and a fear of death. A fear of death. And Paul's touching on this uncertainty with so many people feeling this world. For many, there is no hope. And you can, you can get involved in wishful thinking. You can be an optimist. You can hope that things will end up for the best. But those things just don't come in. They can't cut through the suffering and the misery and the, and the terrible things that happen in this world. And so without a hope, without a Christ, without a Messiah, without a deliverer and savior from this impending death that we're all just trying to escape, we're in trouble, aren't we? We're in big trouble. Life really isn't worth living. Everything gets taken away. And you can see what real people think about the future when they react during a crisis. When they are threatened with the possibility of death, you can see what kind of people they are. That's the moment that you can find out the content of someone's character is put them through a crisis, put them through the real possibility of death, and you'll see what comes out of them. And most of them share the same view as Woody Allen. And they're terrified. It's a morbid view. But our passage doesn't end here, does it? See, Paul wants us to remember these things. He wants us to sit in these things. He wants us to stew in these things. So that we can understand. So that we can know how good the news of Jesus is. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we've seen over the last three weeks that we have spent in Ephesians looking at the 
concept of being dead in sin and alive to God, the absolutely beautiful message of personal and individual salvation, how we were dead in sin, but now we are alive to God. It's a great message, being brought near into entrance into the covenant of grace and included in the promises of Abraham. It's a privilege above all privileges. And honor above all honors, we who are far off are brought near. And it's all that good stuff we have because of the blood of Christ, because he suffered and died in our place. And what Christ accomplished in the cross not only brought the Gentiles, people like us, into the promises of Abraham, but it changed their relationship with the Jews. And it changes the relationship of the Jews to the Gentiles. Notice that Jesus is our peace here. He's our shalom. Christ has made us both one and he's broken down It says, in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. Christ bore our sin, reconciling us to God so that we could be reconciled to our neighbor. Did you catch that? It's not just being reconciled to God, but being reconciled to our neighbor. And so the way to know whether or not this reconciling work of Jesus has been done in your life, the way to know that is to see whether or not that your relationships have been reconciled. Are you reconciled to the people around you, or do you harbor bitterness and grudges? And are you constantly full of slander and gossip? Are you Do you struggle to forgive people? Because if that is true, may I humbly suggest to you that maybe the work of Jesus in your life hasn't really found a, a place in your heart. See, are you constantly in conflict with your neighbor? Where is the work of Jesus in your life? Where is the reconciliation of Jesus in your life? Where is the work of Christ? If it's not deepening your relationships with people around you and not reconciling you to those who have wronged you, where is your relationship to Jesus? This this is the work of the gospel in a people. This is how you can see whether or not they belong to Jesus. Now, the conflict between the Jews and Gentiles were legendary. As I said before, it was even worse than just the circumcision debate. Wars have been fought over between the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, constantly, uh, Jerusalem has been sacked. The temple has been desecrated. Sometimes they would sacrifice unclean animals in the temple in order to really anger the Jews. There was constant animosity between the two. Uh, Jewish people wouldn't go and eat with Gentiles. They saw it as too morally unclean. They wouldn't even touch them. They saw them as that far off, that disgusting. And so you had this terrible hostility between these two people. And I'm not going to go into all of the history here, but there are many books that you can read. But how did Christ reconcile these both groups? How did Christ bring these two groups together through forgiveness, but also, number one, by breaking down the dividing wall of hostility? And number two, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay, firstly, what is the dividing wall of hostility? In the temple, there was this high wall that uh, blocked Gentile passage into the most holy places of the temple. The Gentiles were basically uh, made to stand out in the court of the Gentiles. They weren't allowed further in. And if they did dare to venture further in and they were uncircumcised, um, they were to be put to death. And so for a Gentile, you don't want to enter through this wall access to God, access to the sacrifices 
wasn't allowed for the Gentiles. They weren't given this access. But is this what Paul's talking about? Is he talking about the dividing wall of hostility that's in the temple? I'm not actually convinced that that is what he's talking about. It could be likely that he has he is referring to that, but I think it's more likely he's referring to the social and cultural separation and tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. Either way, the work of Christ on the cross has made it possible for Gentiles and Jews to have the same level of access to the Father, same level of access to God on high. They were able to, now, the, the racial divide, the racial difference was now brought near through Christ and he made them one body, one man. And the key thing of this verse is we have the same access. And he accomplished this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Well, what does that mean? Jesus' death took care of the requirements of the law. The law of Moses required utmost obedience. It was a task that was impossible for any human to do, even the Jews. They tried with all their might to obey stringently the law of Moses, but all the law is is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's something that shows us that we're sinful and we need saving. It shows us how far we fall short of the glory of God. And so disobedience to the law required death. It required death. The wages of sin is death. And so Jesus did what others could not do by living the perfect life and keeping the law in its entirety and dying on behalf of sinners. And by doing that, he opened the way for a different kind of access to God. Now, when God looks at us, he looks at Jesus's righteousness. Whereas before, before Jesus, we were in our sin, in our filth, in our brokenness and messiness and just complete wickedness. And God looked at that and he couldn't allow us access. But because Jesus took that and placed it upon himself and gave us his righteousness, we could now stand before God. So this is great for the Gentiles because they had never lived in obedience to the law. Most of them had never even heard of the requirements of the law. And nor would they ever be able to atone for what they've done. And Jews are the same. They were foolish enough to think that they could keep the law. But the law was only meant to show them how much they needed salvation from God. And they needed to, they needed righteousness credited to them. They needed it given to them from an external source like Abraham had before them. And if they hadn't really understood what it meant, the sign of circumcision meant with Abraham, they would have known that they needed to be like him and put their faith in God and trust in God. And so the law is abolished. And by that, the requirements of the law are abolished. Doesn't mean that the, the law is perfect. The law didn't do anything wrong. But that death penalty imposed on us by the law has been abolished because we needed that death penalty to pass over us. And so it's not to say that uh, there's anything wrong with the law, but there is something wrong with us. And that law stood over us, condemning us because we have not, we have not obeyed it. We're in trouble. And so Jesus has reconciled us into one body. Salvation comes to individuals, but it creates a new community. It creates a new community centered on Jesus. When a group of people are reconciled to God, it means that they are reconciled to each other. It means that they come together and are reconciled into one body. And so Jesus has formed a new community out of new individuals. This is a, this is not 
through Gentiles becoming Jews, or Jews becoming Gentiles, but by both Jews and Gentiles becoming something new, and that is becoming one body with Christ. It's a community of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and together they're made into the one man. Together they are the body of Christ. And so we can't view our salvation as merely individual salvation. We can't separate ourselves off on an island somewhere. We belong in a community that is the church. We belong in a community that is a church and it shows whether or not we belong to Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to an area, he not only reconciles them to God, but to each other. And so those who have experienced the extraordinary forgiveness of Jesus, oh man, they find it so much easier to forgive other people because they know that what God has forgiven them is nothing compared to what they have to forgive this person. And so once once we all gossiped and slandered and ridiculed each other, once we had violence, once we had anger and uh, bitterness, now Jesus has come in and we're united in love, love for one another. That's why Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do people know you for your love of God and neighbor? Do they know you because you love God and you love people around you? Or do they think that you just love God but you don't love anyone else? Any genuinely saved and redeemed community will be known for both. You will see their devotion and love for God through his word and their devotion and love for each other by the work of Jesus on the cross. It's not to say that there's not messiness or there's sin, but there's reconciliation and forgiveness that goes on. A church that has no forgiveness, no reconciliation, I would contend, has not been brought together by Jesus. And so God wants this for us. God wants our church to be wrapped up in this love for neighbor and love for others and love for him. And he wants that for us and he's made it possible for us to do it. So let's go get it. Let's go and make this part of the community of our church. I know that we're separated. I know we're all in our homes. But we are still a body and we're still a community and we still need to be growing in love. Let me pray for us. Father, through your son, Jesus, we have access to you. Lord, through Jesus, we can know the love of a savior. Lord, we have been forgiven for so much. And Lord, you call to remembrance our former life, how we were far away from you and had no hope. And you bring us there to show us how far you brought us. You bring us there to call to remembrance all the things that we have struggled with. And so Lord, help us to not be full of pride and arrogance and see ourselves as better as other, than other people. Help us to not be marked by bitterness and gossip and slander, but by love and forgiveness and community. Lord, you have made us a new person. Make us a new community. We thank you for the work of the Spirit, that great power that rose Jesus from the dead and raised him up into heavenly, the heavenly places and seated him at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we thank you that that Spirit that did that work is still uh, is at work within us. Lord, we need that power and strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.